when I came up to that point where they were looking at all of us trainees and deciding who goes where and they had interviews, I decided I was really going to throw in my lot to try to get into that trading floor where I saw no women. People have a lot of ideas, but you know, it's the when those ideas meet opportunity, that's when you have to act. Why did I become an executive coach? I saw lots of great people fail to get ahead at work, while their much less talented peers blew right past them. That made me furious, but also curious. What were great people getting wrong? It came down to helping them re-examine what drove success and then helping them make critical shifts one hard truth at a time. Feel like you're doing everything you were told, but you're not moving ahead at work nor having the impact you seek? Then welcome to 97% Effective with Michael Winderoth, where we skip feel-good, happy talk and engage experts in pointed conversations about what it really takes to move the needle at work and your career. So if you feel stalled or frustrated or seek that extra edge as you move to the next level, then look no further. This is the hard truths playbook you never got. Hi, I'm Michael Wenderoth, and you're listening to 97% Effective. What can you learn about career management from a former foreign exchange sales and derivatives trader? I'm excited to have as my guest today, Raja Lakshmi Shiva, who oversees market conduct compliance at one of the largest financial firms on Wall Street in New York. I've invited Raj because she is an amazing example of someone who has applied business strategy and innovation, not just to her work, but accelerating careers. She has continually reskilled to pivot and create job opportunities, mentored and volunteered others to creatively build valuable networks, and used those assets and ties to boost others and, in her case, to rejoin the workforce at one point after taking a five-year break. We're going to discuss her career path, keys to re-entering the workforce after taking time off, and how she mentors and advises others, particularly women and women of color, as they design their career paths. Raj is a self-titled culture vulture. I'm looking forward to discussing that. She grew up in Africa and Asia and has led diverse teams at large American and European financial service firms. A path as a foreign exchange trader, derivative salesperson, market conduct compliance, a deep track record of giving back. Raj is founder of the Academic and Creative Engagement Program at the Harlem Junior Tennis and Education Program, mentor at the Financial Women's Association at Baruch College, and member of the leadership team of Women on the Move, her bank's initiative to fuel female ambition, advance financial equality, which focuses on retention, development, and advancement of women across business lines. Raj holds a BA in mathematics and economics from St. Stephen's College, an MBA in finance from the University of Delhi, and completed executive education at Pace University and Stanford's Graduate School of Business. Raj, welcome to 97% Effective. Thank you, Mike. I'm looking forward to being a part of this amazing podcast series that you put together. Let's start with Culture Vulture, and you have a very global, diverse background. A little bit of that path that started in, in Africa and Asia and has landed you in New York. So my dad worked with the government in India. He was a technocrat. He was an engineer, 
And he was posted in Africa, in countries like Algeria and Cameroon. And this was when I was pretty young, in middle school. So it gave me a fantastic opportunity to travel. I did stay with grandparents in India, so I got that aspect of dealing with multiple ages as well as different cultures, but also single travel as an unaccompanied minor, something which in the pre-smartphone, pre-internet days is almost impossible for most parents to believe. So I used to travel all by myself as an unaccompanied minor. I would be handed off by my grandparents in Hyderabad to the uh, air hostess, but it used to be a journey, a journey of discovery for me and adventure at the age, starting from the age of nine all the way till I was almost 13. So I would do this once every year, once my exams would end in the month of March in India, final exams for that school year, say goodbye to my grandparents and be handed over to this air hostess with a little plastic bag hung around my neck with my passport and all other documents, hardly any money. I don't, and I think the whole foreign currency obsession started there. I would really be excited to get Dutch guilders, Deutschmarks, all these various currencies, look at them. While on these long flights, connecting flights would go to Europe, and then I would connect from there to Africa. So I think my passion with a lot of foreign currencies the value, all of that started, the seeds were sown on those trips. It also meant I had to learn to speak up for myself, to ask for things. The first flight, I didn't ask for any food. And the air hostess said, oh, I thought you were sleeping. So, and you didn't want anything. So that was a life lesson. What led you though into foreign exchange sales and trading? I come from a very traditional family background. Though my parents were posted overseas, uh, I come from a very traditional conservative family. So, and also I would say a government background family. So what does that mean? It means you don't take too many risks. You focus on education. You study really hard, maybe common to a lot of people who've come from Asian cultural backgrounds. Education was number one, specifically mathematics, which is really what I majored in. Thankfully, it was also a passion, but so I was steered in those directions. And the idea was that you're going to do computer science. You're going to and believe, uh, you know, in those days, computer science was pretty nascent. So I actually did classes in programming, things like that. So I was led on to that path. Idea being you will be a safe, and I put that in quotes, safe college professor, teacher, uh, educator, even a government bureaucrat, which was really my father's secret dream, that maybe I would want to follow him into those professions. So that was the plan. That was a grand plan. And I joined a college uh, which was known for sending a lot of people into those types of professions and careers. Uh, so what changed? I decided I was going to do my MBA after graduating in mathematics for my undergrad. And that was a big shift. Uh, I had also got into this computer science uh, master's, and I also had a scholarship to come to the U.S. for a Ph.D. in management. And clearly, uh, my family and my dad, with all good intentions, and I think he was right as well, said, you should go to the U.S., to Boston, to do that. And this was to Boston University. Um, 
I thought about that and said, no, I want to do my MBA. And so I instead joined a a college, uh, the Faculty of Management Studies in Delhi, and ended up majoring in finance. And I think that opened my world in terms of just being exposed to people from different backgrounds, many of whom had worked before. So in India at that point in time, you didn't really need to have much work experience to do an MBA. And I I strongly feel everyone should do a lot of different internships. Uh, If I had to dial back and do something all over again, I would suggest that people should do a lot of internships before, uh, even whilst in college. We didn't have those opportunities uh, when I was growing up. But really, doing that MBA program, in a sense, gave me great exposure to peers, ideas, uh, and other people who'd done those, who'd actually worked. And so I made a choice that I wanted to try finance. Uh, And also... I think the other simple reason was they came first to recruit on campus. <laughs> That's where the jobs are. <laughs> so, so, so maybe that was it. So I joined American Express, the big blue, uh, as it, uh, you know, the blue box, as it's called, and um, it had a fantastic run of 10 years uh, on the foreign exchange trading desk. I started off with the rotation programs. Again, something I highly recommend to not just women, but everyone starting out. Great way to learn the nuts and bolts of any business, especially banking. So even now, when people talk about trade finance and the blockchain and how it can change trade finance, even though I'm not in that world, I know what that means because my first job was literally manager imports and exports. So sitting there checking documentary credits, supervising people who were uh, at least 15 years older than me. Uh, so those are valuable experiences. Uh, also, I sat on the cash desk, just doling out physical currencies. Again, it's something that maybe people would wonder what is the use, but it tells you a lot about accounting, a lot about, you know, now I'm in the compliance world about where the risks are, what happens, a lot of human interaction. So you learn by osmosis, by doing different jobs, taking those risks of dealing, uh, you know, starting afresh every few months. And that, you know, the the safety that a rotational program provides is unparalleled. So very early on, you were a sponge and and getting broad exposure, which helps you today. And and this expression that you have used, which I think embodies a lot of what you've done, is... I never miss or never miss an opportunity. Say more about that because it sounds like also a lot of the things that you advise and you mentor are very much encapsulated in that phrase. So it's really, so one of the things they say is that people have a lot of ideas, but you know, it's the, when those ideas meet opportunity, that's when you have to act. So I'll give you an example. And this is about after I finished my rotation program with Amex, uh, we had interviews and they tried to, in where you were uh, assessed for where you would be placed, what they called your final placement. And uh, I really wanted to get into what was then called the treasury function in the bank, which was really uh, comprised of foreign exchange as well as the money markets and uh, you know the actual asset liability management function of the bank. And so I was really interested in the foreign exchange side of it. And I think, as I mentioned, a lot of it came from international exposure, 
uh, following macro markets and development came naturally to me because I had been, and bear in mind, this was a time when you had to read newspapers. Uh, not everybody had access to a Bloomberg screen. Um, in fact, Bloomberg wasn't even popular then. It was Reuters uh, or Telerate. No, so you had to be a professional to get access to some of this stuff. So someone like me, I just read voraciously whatever uh, business magazines one came across or even something like international relations, newspapers, magazines, articles. Uh, you know, if you follow things, you're a news junkie, as I call it, then this was an obvious choice. So when I came up to that point where they were looking at all of us trainees and deciding who goes where and they had interviews, I decided I was really going to throw in my lot to try to get into that trading floor where I saw no women. This was, I started in India. Uh, I did not start in the US and I say that with pride because it gave me a lot of learning and understanding in a smaller desk that I may not have got in some other parts of the world at that point in time. And I was mentor, I, I got into that desk because the person who interviewed me realized that I was really passionate about the business, about news, about international affairs and relations, and felt that this was someone who could probably be fitted into this, despite the fact that there were no other women. It used to be a classroom. So it was very interesting. You know, you look from the outside, it's like a fishbowl. You wouldn't see anyone who looked like you, no women. Uh, and I wanted to be inside that. Prior to me, there probably had been one or two uh, senior uh, women who had been there for a bit. So it wasn't that there was completely no one. But when I joined, there was no one on that floor. And it was an interesting experience because I, I feel I, I spent the first few months more focused on what I was wearing and things like that, which I feel wouldn't have been something that any uh, man would have thought about. They would have just focused on the job. Uh, I was very job focused, but I was also thinking about, you know, I would wear sometimes saris and Indian dress or something else. But I was really more focused on how do I look like in today's world, the power look. And I was very focused on trying to prove credibility, trying to prove that and I didn't even see it as, as a woman or as a man. I think it was as a junior. Thankfully, the people on my team were very supportive and I was given plenty of opportunities to uh, make mistakes. Why do I say that? You know, you cannot be an FX trader without taking risks, without losing money, without having someone support you through that process. It wasn't that supportive as in somebody's holding my hand and saying, oh, it's okay. You No, that's not what I mean. I mean that you are treated just like anybody else. That's all. You don't want any special positive, um, you know, affirmations or things like that. It's just that, okay, just like anyone else. So because if the first time you lose, someone makes a big deal about it or it's seen as you're treated slightly different from others, that could really have a negative interaction. Some of it is also the words you tell yourself. You have to focus on what did I come here to do? How is the best way to do it? How do I fix it? Go reach out to others. Um, some of the mistakes I'll mention here, I did not go reaching out to as many people as I should have. I was very, um, I, I felt that I should just do my work, put my head down and, not be 
visible in those first few months. Big mistake. Mm. That's pretty, maybe cultural that you're told that you work hard, you put your head down and you work even harder if something goes wrong. <laughs> and uh, not the best strategy. The, one of the things I would do differently now is go around, introduce myself to everybody and say, hey, can I get 10 minutes during lunchtime, during coffee breaks? Traders didn't have too much of lunchtime, so maybe that was another reason why I couldn't. Many of them would go down to take smoke breaks. I didn't smoke. Again, different uh, time and place. So I think women get shut out of some of these organic networking opportunities, um, at least at that point in time. Uh, so I would say if the, the, the person that I'm now would have made those opportunities, the person I was then did not even understand that those were times that I should have reached out to people and just talk to them. Hey, what would you do if the market did this or something else happened? How would you change this? Those are the kinds of conversations that maybe a lot of women miss out on because they're not actively trying to be part of teams. It's also hard to be part of teams if you're not talking sport. Um, in the U.S., it would be a football example. In India, it was cricket. I understood cricket. I didn't really spend all my time thinking about it. So it wasn't something that I was organically um, thinking about as an icebreaker. But this is something I would suggest to people. Try to, you know, stay up the curve on certain things like this. Try to find icebreakers to start those conversations. Most people won't bite you. They're, you know, don't you don't need to be worried about that. Just go out there. Try to find maybe one or two people in a room or in your group with whom you can talk about things. Uh, look at things from a different perspective. You have to get out of your own way, stay open, reach out to get those. And for you back then, Raj, you know, building credibility? So the answer to that is unfortunately that traditionally you have to work harder than other people. So <laughs> that, that does happen. That's important. Having said that, I think I understood that I had to have those relationships with people around me, not just on my team, but on other teams. So it was a slow, laborious process, not very fancy. Uh, we didn't have literature which explained these kinds of things, the rules of network. I didn't even know what networking was, but I think it came organically having moved around. That's where the initial exposure helped because I was comfortable going up to people I didn't know, introducing myself, you would now call it an elevator pitch, um, and telling them, hey, um, this is who I am, this is what I'm doing, and try to find out things about them. One of the things I learned very early in life is people are very interested in themselves. So you, the best way to really learn about others and to build a relationship with them is let them talk about themselves, what they do. Um, you learn about their work, about what drives them, what motivates them. And I never forget, I won't say never, but I have a good memory for people and random pieces of information about them. So I file that away in my brain and it helps when I meet them the next time because I'll say, hey, how's your daughter doing? Is she feeling better? So if someone tells me a piece of information, um, that is a way to connect with that person. So to humanize that relationship, even when you're in a fast-paced world. So that's one tip I will say that 
you have to always look at people as humans, try to see what is it that they're interested in and try to focus on that at least the first few times. So you build that relationship. Once you've built the relationship, you can then take it to the next step, ask them about issues you may be having. But the first few interactions are really about them. And that's something a lot of people sometimes forget. So it's a really good point. I, I want to quickly ask you too, Raja Lakshmi, and you go by Raj, which most people, when they probably see that, it's it's a male name. And I'm just curious if people, when they first meet you and they've only seen Raj, they may make certain assumptions. And I'm just curious if how that <laughs> how that plays out sometimes. So this is an interesting story that I have. Raj is traditionally a male, uh, an Indian male name. So I just cut off the my entire long name and um, you know, I go by Raj simply because that's how people called me in school in India, um, where I grew up. And I, th- I believe it was for convenience because the name was a handful, a mouthful, I would add. So one of the interesting stories I have is on the desk, um, we had, I had a Reuter dealing system and we had to have a dealing code and mine was R-A-J, Raj. And so when I would ask for a price, in those days, you had to ask for a price on the stealing system to other banks and, you know, somebody on the other side would pick up your call and they would see Raj. And what I observed, uh, I would say this was almost like an experiment, was that um, I would get better prices when I asked on the Reuters system because they didn't know my gender. But when I would pick up the phone, these were the days of, you know, phone uh, trading as well. Uh, I would get different kinds of prices. So this is very interesting, the treatment I got. And it was subtle. Uh, It was an observation. I don't know if it was just correlation and not just causation, but I definitely observed that. Uh, And this is something that... uh, uh, it, it baffled me, but then I said, okay, I'm going to use it in my favor. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's quite an interesting story. You've been listening to 97% Effective with your host, executive coach, Michael Winderoth. If this interview is making you think, make sure to share it with a friend. Now, back to our interview. Fast forward. Let, let's fast forward to, to the kind of middle uh, of your career because you took five years off. You left the world of finance for five years and you came back. Re-entry, you talk about how you've done that. It's more and more people are doing it these days. And you benefited from your bank's re-entry program. I'd love for you to share some of the keys you've learned and also because you mentor others of when you take that gap, how do you come back in a successful way that's not going back to the bottom in one's career? So firstly, I had uh, more than one gap. And uh, the way that worked was really because I'm we moved countries. I've lived in places like Jakarta, Indonesia, uh, in uh, you know parts of Europe as well as here. So when we moved, I had a gap because I didn't have a work permit to work immediately. So that took some time as well. Um, and then, you know, I actually joined a French bank where I was a corporate derivative salesperson, FX and derivative salesperson. So in the U.S., in New York. Um, so that gap, I actually ended up going to, uh, you know, trying to find out what is it that I can do which uses my previous skills 
but still builds on, uh, you know, builds on it, but is a, but could be different. So each time you come back from a career gap, one of the things you have to remember is what skills do you actually have? So I always tell people, focus on what are your transferable skills. People talk a lot about them. What, what does it really mean? It means if you have hard skills, actually sit down on a piece of paper and write it down. And then split that page and write down what now are called soft skills, but I think soft skills are really the harder skills. So, you know, whether it's managing people, whether it's reading people, whether it's putting teams together, write all that down. Now, in terms of how do you manage a gap, um, I think you should do things during that gap, which also showcase uh, you know, I would say play to your strengths. So one of the things I did was set up a program where my, uh, by then I had sons I had, um, and they were in school. Um, uh, the first gap, they were very young. I couldn't work because of work permits. Second time around, they were a little older, but there was a tennis program that they were part of in Harlem called the Harlem Junior Tennis and Education Program. And I would go drop them off there. And instead of realized I was spending a lot of time sitting around waiting for them to hit balls. And I felt that wasn't the best use of my time because um, there were all these other people and moms and I got talking to them and realized a lot of them came from backgrounds where their children were good tennis players. Uh, this was a minority driven program, a lot excellent tennis players some in the top 100 under 16, but they couldn't make it to some of the college um, student athlete programs because they were not clearing their SAT or their regions algebra or geometry. These are math exams in the US for high schoolers. So I realized that since math was a passion, I was into puzzles and things like that when I was younger. I said, let me test this education gene in me uh, come from a family background where people were in the education, um, you know, business on the side. So I tested that out, literally started by tutoring some of the kids in um, for regions geometry. And somehow that became a program. I was soon asking for grant money. The head of that Harlem program supported me. And we ended up doing something using the United States Tennis Association's Academic and Creative Engagement Program adapted it for our students, got some computers. So in the free time when they were not hitting balls, they could do they could get homework help. They could get one on one tutoring. Uh, it scaled. And I didn't uh, I was not part of Stanford's lead at that time. But if I had been, I might have thought even broader than I did at that point in time. So that was one way. So volunteering is a way to showcase your skills. I didn't start that way by thinking I was showcasing any skills. I was just doing what I wanted to do, which is I loved interacting with um, young men of that age group, high schoolers. This was made for that. I wanted to share my love for mathematics, area of a tennis court, perimeter of a tennis court, anything that grabs them in. So it's organic, but there was a strategy in the sense that I wanted to use skills that I had, putting together a program, building a program, running a small, I would say almost a business by itself. So that's one way. Other way is network. 
you have to network with people. And this is the idea of weak ties. You know, when you're actually looking for things, for roles or information, um, it is not always the people who are closest to you who are going to be able to guide you on that because they're so used to seeing you all of the time. They're not able to look at you differently. So it is the weak ties. And these are people with whom you may not, you may connect, you may be connected to them, but you may not have talked to them in a while, or they might not have seen you um, for some period of time. So there's that gap and they're willing to look at you in new ways that maybe people who are too close to you may not be able to. So for me, it was literally that. It was weak ties. I met someone who told me about reentry, uh, about not just my firm, but many of the firms were doing it. And uh, we got talking. We did a few coffee chats. Um, and I understood that this was a nascent program, very competitive. Uh, there were more than 3,000 people who applied for about 20 or 30 roles. And I realized I was not the person that I was before. I had changed. I had evolved. I had grown. Um, earlier, I had been an individual contributor, and I had no experience dealing with handling people, managing large teams. But now I was. I was fully comfortable dealing with complexity of a different type. I was a good, better communicator. Uh, any parent will testify to that. You learn a lot of different skills uh, once you're that. And on top of it, I had also managed budgets using, uh, you know, in, in, a, in areas where there were heavy constraints. So it had given me all these different skills that I didn't know I, ex I had and wanted me, uh, you know, was the motivation for me to explore new options. So when I applied to uh, reentry, I actually ended up getting placed in exactly the same role that I'd been doing earlier before I left. But I also found my way to my current role. So like I said, you get your foot in the door. Once you're in, you can then figure out how you want to move within as well. And that's maybe a different segment. Yeah. So, I mean, it very much sounds, again, like never miss an opportunity. And as you said, get your foot in the door through those various mechanisms. And then to be proactive in terms of how you ask and, and package up your skills and abilities, even ones you've developed during that period off? So here's the thing. The role I landed in, I didn't know uh, I'm now in a regulatory compliance role. I wasn't even thinking about it when I was looking to come back. And that is the point I want to make here, that uh, I looked at roles in concentric circles. The center was my FX skills. But so the next concentric circle after trading was sales. Uh, and then the next concentric circle was literally compliance mm. for those roads. I didn't even think of that when I started on this journey. But by talking to people, by uh, literally observing who are the various stakeholders around me, uh, I got a sense of this is something that where my skills would all add up and I would have growth. And the growth sometimes can be not just vertically, but also laterally. And maybe that's something we can talk on a separate segment. Yeah, I, I love the idea or that visual of the concentric circles. And if, going back to the Steve Jobs speech, you know, the, the dots connect when you look back. They're not always totally clear when you're looking forward. Uh, I'll also interject here. I, I love the work that you did with the USTA and the Harlem Association. I, I'm a product, you know, as a former collegiate tennis player of 
Arthur Ashe's Gold Cup program in Philadelphia is where, where I grew up. So it's great to hear that you added that element onto the program there. Yeah. One of the things we would do is, you know, everybody had to write the Arthur Ashe. Every year there's an essay that you write on how you've been inspired by Arthur Ashe. And it was also a way of writing practice for many of these tennis players, a way of uh, expression. Some used it even for their college essays. Yeah. Raj, many of the elements that you have talked about um, in terms of rejoining, very much applies. Another big area that you have written about, that you work on, is career design. And at various levels from high school, undergrad, to executives, you work with them in terms of kind of designing their careers, applying many business principles around innovation strategy. In addition to the things you talked about rejoining, networking, you know, being proactive, what else would you add or how, how do you work with individuals as they, looking forward, think about designing their careers? So I'm going to step back a bit and not directly answer your question. I'm going to give you a sense of how it came about for me that I explored all these options. When I joined through the uh, returnship or reentry program at my firm, uh, I was at a different experience level versus those I was sitting next to. Uh, and a different uh, life stage as well. So I realized that the way to really engage with the firm and understand the other different areas was to become a part of an employee resource group. Uh, And so I joined the firm's Women on the Move employee resource group, started at the bottom, did all the grunt work. Uh, This is over and above my day job. And what that meant was that I made relationships and friends with not just the women and women on the, you know, the word woman, I always joke, includes men. (laughs) Uh, So, uh, you know, I've always been a proponent of men joining women's networks. I have two sons and I believe I start with them. Um, But essentially that gave me a bird's eye view of the different areas within the firm, made me a connector. And I think that is one thing I want to mention. It also increased my own employee engagement within the firm with my own job. And it got me thinking about, hey, maybe this is a way to design my career. Uh, I really like my day job, which is at the intersection of technology, regulation, markets, uh, you know, financial markets, as well as ethics and the law. So that was a full-time job, and but Women on the Move, which is an employee resource group, um, gave me an idea about the greater world within my firm and the connections to what I was doing. You can't be in, in compliance and isolation. You have to understand the business. I did understand my business because I came from there, but I want to understand other businesses. And I think when you do that, your engagement with your role increases. You start thinking more proactively on how can I do my day job better because I am now familiar with all the various pieces that affect it. So that's one tip. Join your ERG. And don't just join women's ERGs. I'm a member of the Black Organization for Leadership and Development. I'm an organization, you know, I'm on the Asian BRG. I tell people join BRGs where no one looks like you, you know, or the Pride uh, organization. 
so which is gay and lesbian. So those kinds of things give you an insight into other uh, ways of thinking. How does somebody else think differently from you? And the more you get into that, you realize, hey, we're all probably thinking the same at the bottom. The external wrapper might be different. Yeah. So that's one. The other thing I want to mention is that uh, design your career, therefore, came out of all these experiences. And at some point, I decided I wanted to upskill. And so uh, it was a mentor of mine at the firm. Uh, and I will talk separately about mentoring, but really who suggested that upskilling um, using, uh, you know, some of the exec ed courses might be a good way to go. So design your careers came out of all of these experiences. It came out of realizing that you may not, there are a lot of people out there who may not want to completely pivot into a different area. You know, they don't want to become uh, rock stars or something after being bankers. They want to find how to do their current job um, in a more engaging way, maybe find mobility within the firm. These were the people I was meeting whilst talking to in the ERG, um, you know, various events that we host and things like that. And I was extremely involved in a lot of the uh, professional development and training sessions there. So I ended up setting up this website on uh, a channel on Weaver. Weaver is a, and I'm going to call out Avinash Harsh, who's a Stanford leader. Exactly. Uh, it's a Stanford startup. It's a Stanford lead startup. And it's, a, it's to build expert networks and communities. So my community is literally called Design Your Career, DYC. It's about people helping each other um, on how they have designed their own careers and learning from each other's opportunities and ideas. A previous guest on this show was, was very skeptical of ERGs, felt that these are ways to talk about issues but not actually address you know, inequality. And, and I love your comments on this because it sounds like a very vibrant source that you have utilized to help and, and also boost your own career. So I will say this, that each person takes out of things what they put into it, right? So you have to put in, you have to bank in a lot of goodwill in order to take something out. I will say one very strong thing in terms of ERGs. It's many people I speak to, their day jobs are siloed. Uh, they don't have access to develop skills. You know, bear in mind, a lot of them were not as, I would say, fortunate as I was to travel from such a young age or to engage with different people. So they have gone through life doing certain specific roles, developed core competency in that role. So they're probably subject matter experts in that role. But they have no idea how their role fits into other parts of the firm, how other things get, you know, interact with what they're doing. Uh, their day job may not have give them the time or the opportunity to network. You know, it may not even be considered proper to be seen as wasting time networking. ERGs give you a uh, structured organizational way of meeting people, one of understanding that, hey, there are other parts of the firm, it actually helps you do your day job better. And if you take leadership roles in or volunteer for ERGs, like, for example, I had never run groups of, I'd never organized an event before. And I did it sitting from my desktop, from my uh, you know computer. I had never used project management software and tools to 
uh, handle people and projects and learn how to do this. I was an FX trader, for heaven's sake. So, uh, you know, this was not my core competency or sit in meetings where 50 people are talking. Uh, in my previous avatar, I would have said, what a waste of time. Now I'm like, okay, how can we make this more productive? What is the end goal? How can we set up agendas so people can get the final job done? So I think I learned a lot of skills, which now helped me in my compliance role, which involves interacting with people across the firm, as well as, you know, sitting on those meetings and understanding how to make them work more efficiently, um, you know, set targets, deadlines, run those projects, deliver them on time. So you can test out in your volunteer opportunities, your skills that maybe your day job doesn't give you access to. That's one. Okay. Uh, on the equity part, you know, people have, I will not comment on that because I will say exactly what I said earlier, which is you get out of things what you put into them. And so you have to really be committed to what you want out of things. Uh, this is not a way to showcase yourself and get your face. Um, I know most of the events are put together. We don't even have our pictures on them. But we get a lot out of them in the background in terms of meeting people, in terms of networking, in terms of understanding other areas that you would never have learned before or even known existed earlier. So when you talk about mobility opportunities for some of the people I mentor, I'm able to be a more effective mentor because now I know about all these other areas that I might not have even known uh, existed or even understanding that, oh, the digital part of the firm is growing or some other area is growing, things like these, uh, unless you're doing them in your day job you, and you're not, if you're, if you're just putting your nose down and only doing what you're doing, in today's world where things are changing so fast, you're going to be dinosaur. So the way to really be engaged and involved is also by paying attention to what is going on around you. People talk about, you know, the generation issue and all of that. Guess what? I've been reverse mentored by all my mentees. I mentor with the Financial Women's Association at Baruch College, which is a local New York City public university. And very proudly, I have a badge which gives me access to Baruch's facilities, though I didn't go there. Um, my mentee, it was a three-year program, so I was with her from her sophomore year all the way to graduation. Mentored her. She did end up in a banking role, in an um, investment banking role at another firm. Uh, but I think the main point is she was first-generation college. She didn't have family who could guide her on these, uh, you know, simple things like how do you go for an interview? How do you talk to people? What are the things to focus on? What classes to take? I wish someone had told me that. Um, things like that. But in the process, I have learned a lot from her too. What are the data courses she's taken? I ended up doing some of the courses, you know, testing. I learned a lot of Excel from her. So there is, you know, there is a lot of two-way flow that happens when you put your foot into waters that you may not really know how to swim in. But when you throw yourself into it, you do come up. I still have this visual in my head of the of the little girl riding around on the plane to different points. And the points that you bring up here, Raj, incredibly important in large companies where you can very much get siloed. And when you really want to get things done and be able to move across the organization, you need to build those, to your point, 
the weak ties that even exist within your organization. Every point that you have brought up here is critical career advice for pretty much everyone. And you have said this multiple times. But I don't want to ignore the fact that women, women of color, are less represented, particularly in your area. As you think about these different dimensions that you have talked about, in terms of designing your career, propelling your career, are there very specific challenges or strategies that you feel the women, and particularly women of color, that you mentor or you work with need to be very in tune with or be doing differently than, than others? So I would say one of the things, I, I wouldn't say they need to be doing them differently. I would say they need to be aware of some of the dynamics that maybe the family backgrounds that uh, we grew up in may not necessarily have emphasized. Um, and, you know, uh, they, they say networking, right? So in many of our cultures, it's highly looked down upon. It's seen as a negative word. It's, it's almost like it's seen as, oh, why are you trying to, to be fake? Why are you? So I would go counter this by saying, do not be fake, be authentic. But nobody is their complete authentic self, right? So you're not putting everything out there. Be a grown-up, be an adult. Try to understand what is it about your brand that you really want to focus on. So start with that. Start with understanding that you have to be some kind of a brand. You, you know, what is it that makes you you, right? So uh, write down, okay, I want to be seen as someone who can execute well, who can drive strategy. All of that are things you put in your performance appraisal. But someone who doesn't know you when they first talk to you, do they feel that you are a person they can connect with? Um, you know, likability is not what I'm talking about. A lot of women of color think they need to be likable in order to rise or to go up the ladder, it's not really about likability. It's about being seen as a committed individual who can be trusted to get the job done, because that's really what you're going to get um, credit for at the end of the day. You know, no one cares whether you're on the leadership team of ERGs or other things. But I agree, the work comes first, and it always has for me. But you have to understand who are the stakeholders? Try to understand who you know how they think about your role and reach out to them. Try to make sure that they know what you're doing. And also in the process, find out from them what they think you should be doing. You know, so this is something that is important. It's something I struggled with. Um, uh, I know you might had come out with that power map. And I downloaded it, and I'm guilty of not having completed it. Uh, but it was on my to-do list. And even now, I actually looked at it just before this call because I said, I need to do this this year. I need to really take this more seriously. And I realized I was doing bits and pieces of it, but not the entirety of it. So I would say that is something women, and even men of color, or even, and I won't even say of color, I would say people who have not had those opportunities of being coached uh, or having seen, uh, you know, maybe their family, their parents working in these types of careers, they might not be aware that you have to realize that there is a, uh, you know, the word power is something that puts people off. They think that it's, again, part of the whole being fake, being inauthentic. No, you can have soft power, hard power, any power, but power and 
it just means influence. And I think influence is a better word in my vocabulary because I've never been a power game person. I've always been more of an influence person. Many of the roles I have, I've had matrix organizations and I've managed people without direct authority, but I've always had influence. And that influence has come a lot of the time without authority, because if you know, I've had a squiggly career, a nonlinear career. And sometimes people don't realize that you've had more experiences than they, than your title in that org chart or hierarchy could uh, show them. So influence matters and you have to work on it. It is a process. You have to show that you have the, A, firstly, you have to have your subject matter expertise that is there. But most more than that, I think, is EQ. So learning to read the room, learning to reach out to a mentor. So mentors and sponsors, mentors are those who you can talk about on various things, you can listen to them, but they're not the one who are really putting out for promotion. Sponsors are those who are, who can actually talk about you when you're not in the room. So you know, understanding the difference. I didn't know those differences. I think the problem a lot of people make is that they are trying to look at what's in it for me, what's in it for me. Look at it from the point of view of what can I give this person so they start talking about me? You know, how can I help them do their job better so they find me and what I do of value to them? So I think that is a little bit of a mind shift. It's important when you put yourself out there that you are seen as first giving a lot of value. I mean, it might work for some people that they give no value and they get a lot of influence, good for them. For the rest of us, I strongly believe it's really about understanding that you have to be providing value. Make sure you tell Maybe some of us don't speak about it and that's also there. So learning to speak about the value provide is also maybe a skill that is to be learned and highly, you know, practice in a low stress area like an ERG. Um, you know, when you go to those ERG meetings, talk to senior people there and try to practice that, hey, this is what I do. And, you know, I, my team does this. And so that's another use for ERGs. Uh, you know, you can test out some of these skills in a safe space. Yeah. So there's very much, again, I go back to never miss an opportunity looking at all of the opportunities that do exist and how to take advantage of them. In your comments there, I really like how you address this question of likability that comes up, reframed, you know, redefined authenticity and influence. And, and one of the things that I often say to, to, to my clients, and I think you embody in a huge way here, Raj, is you need to show competence you need to show compatibility and you need to show that you're committed. And if you can do those three things, your career starts to propel because you're building those relationships. You've got the strong fundamentals <laughs> that you're doing things and people need to see that you're committed, that you want to, to do those things. And that to your point of, of asking and understanding what's important to them. It's been a fantastic discussion here, Raj. Any final question I didn't ask or we didn't touch on that you want to address here as we close out? So one of the things I'd just like to end with is that Stanford's motto is change lives, change organizations, change the world. The key point I'd like to mention here is you need to start with changing your life. 
right? So a lot of people have these very lofty goals. Um, I graduated from LEED last year, fun fact, along with my younger son, who graduated from Stanford's undergrad program with an econ major. So no, I'm not sure there's any other leader who's done that. Um, <laughs> so just throwing that out there. So you can learn all the time and you should continuously keep learning. But changing lives begins by changing your skills, your job, not changing, I think upskilling, making those tweaks that you need to stay in tune with the changing world. I'm not going into generative AI and chat GPT, but literally chat GPT could do my talk for me, you know, in today's world. So what is it that makes me me? You have to find that and make sure that you present that and you're comfortable with owning who you are and putting that out there. Find value that, you know, is maybe not been done in your team and try to get into those roles, raise your hand and, you know, really some, some of the most unglamorous jobs can get you noticed. So that's just one tip I'm going to say that sometimes if you raise your hand and say, I want to do that and no one else wants to do it, believe me, yeah, it may be harder, but the route to any place is not always a straight line, could be a squiggly one. Yeah. Raj, fantastic. Never miss an opportunity. How do people reach out to you, learn more of what you do, even take advantage of your, your Weaver course? So my website on, you know, my channel on Weaver is called Design Your Career, and I shared my link with you. And I'm available on the usual social media on LinkedIn is the best way. And as mentioned, everything I stated here is my personal you know, opinion and point of view, not related to my employer. And I look forward to discussing ways to innovate and find meaningful ways to design each of our careers going forward. And hopefully it would be a rewarding journey for each one of us as we try to make those small incremental steps to make our own careers a better one. Thank you for joining me. Fantastic conversation. And I'm glad that you could make the time. Thank you, Michael. Always wanted to be on this podcast because you ask these very insightful questions which feel like being on a therapy couch. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to 97% Effective, where we skip happy talk and help you break through and ascend one hard truth at a time. Help others discover this show. Leave a review and rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you like what you heard, you can get free resources, including the first chapters of Michael's book, Get Promoted, on his website, www.changwinderoth.com. That's www.changwinderoth.com.